0: One of the most famous characters of the New Testament is the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. God used him to author 16 different books in the New Testament, I think it is. Great missionary, great church planter, great theologian, the Apostle Paul. But Paul had one consuming life passion. His passion was that every person he came into contact with would be complete in Christ. It's a phrase that Paul uses in the New Testament in a few places. One of them is in a little New Testament letter that he wrote called the letter to the church at Colossae, or we call it the book of Colossians. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it this morning to that New Testament book, the book of Colossians. And If if you're visiting with us or this is your first time in our church, we as a church family for the last year or so have been just studying verse by verse through this wonderful letter that Paul wrote. And in this letter, Paul taught us about his passion to see people complete in Christ. Now, when he uses that phrase, complete in Christ, what he's really talking about is maturity. People walking in maturity in their relationship with Jesus. You see, Paul's desire was not just to see people come to know Jesus, even though that's step number one to maturity, right? Right. Step number one is seeing people come to know Christ, coming to a personal love relationship with God, and Paul was very passionate about that. He was passionate about seeing people come to know Christ personally, but Paul wasn't satisfied with just seeing people come to know Christ. Paul wanted to see them deepen their love relationship with Jesus to the point that they begin to walk in maturity with Christ. As we've studied this wonderful letter together, Paul has laid out for us exactly what that looks like. He began by teaching us about who Jesus is. And he laid out for us in chapter 1 of the book of Colossians into the beginning of chapter 2 this wonderful doctrinal theological statement about the person and work of Jesus. And then Paul began to teach us about who we are now because of who Jesus is. You see, it's very important that we understand who he is because now my identity as a follower of Christ is completely wrapped up in who Jesus is. And if I don't understand who Jesus is, I'll never understand the freedom in being who I am in Christ. So Paul lays down this wonderful truth about who Jesus is and then he begins to say, hey, this is who you are because of who Jesus is. And then Paul transitions again and he begins to show us what it looks like as Christ lives his life out through us, which is really what Christianity is. Christianity is not you and me trying hard to live for Jesus. Christianity is Jesus living his life literally through me out of the overflow of intimate fellowship with him. That's the whole book of Colossians in a nutshell, you say, Well, why didn't you say it like that? We wouldn't have had to study it for a whole year, right? <laughs> well, I gotta have something to do, right? So, <clears throat> but that's the whole book of Colossians. We're in the last two weeks, this weekend and next weekend, and we'll bring the book of Colossians to a close. At the end of Colossians, Paul is giving us what we've simply called some marks of maturity some identifying characteristics of what it looks like when Christ is living his life through me. When I'm living out of the overflow of that relationship, when I'm living out my identity, who I am in him, Paul says this is what it looks like. Now, we've already looked at two of these. Two weekends ago, I introduced you to one of them out of Colossians 4, verses 2 and 3, 2, 3 and 4. The first mark of maturity that we gave you was a desperate... Pursuit of God in prayer. Read that out loud with me. A desperate pursuit of God in prayer. When I'm living out of the overflow of intimacy with Jesus, one of the things it looks like is a desperate pursuit of God in prayer. I don't pray because I have to to be a good Christian. No. As I begin to live out of my identity in Christ, I grow in my desperation for God and understanding who He is and who I am in Him, and it manifests itself in a continuous conversation ongoing fellowship if you weren't here you can go online or go on iTunes and you can grab that message and kind of catch up last weekend pastor Travis introduced you to the second mark of maturity and we said it was this a passion for living on mission with God daily read that out loud with me a passion for living on mission with God daily When I grow in who I am in Christ, I begin to understand that every moment of my life is lived on mission with Him. Where through my life and through my lips, what I do and what I say, every moment becomes an opportunity to be on mission with God. When I'm growing in Christ and beginning to walk in maturity, Paul says, here's what it looks like. Man, a desperate pursuit of God in prayer. There's a A a daily understanding that I'm on mission with God. That's what maturity begins to look like in Christ. Now, Paul transitions at this point in the letter to a place where most people kind of check out, right? If you got your Bible, we're going to pick up this morning in Colossians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse number 7. Now, If you've already looked ahead, which I'm sure all of you do every week, you go ahead to read the verses, and you study them, knowing that when you get here, you want to be prayed up and ready to hear the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Say amen, whether you mean it or not. Amen? Amen. Now, ask the Lord to forgive you. No, I'm kidding. We get to this point in the letter where Paul starts mentioning all these difficult-to-pronounce names, right? Now, what typically happens, we get to this point in the letter, and we go, yeah, we're done, and we close it, and we move on, right? Listen, there is so much in the remaining verses that are here. We could literally spend 10 weeks in these verses. Now, we're not going to, but we could. Because there are 10 more marks of maturity that you see in the lives of these people. So we're going to give you five this weekend, five next week, and You're thinking, oh my gosh, we're going to be here all day. They did two in two weeks. We're getting five today. Now, we're going to get you home, All right. But there are five that I want to point out today in the lives of these friends. Paul begins to mention his friends. It's interesting, as you study the entire New Testament, Paul mentions over 100 different names of people that participated with him on his missionary journeys. Now, that in and of itself, this one's free, all right? This one's not even going to be on the screen. As I was praying over this again this morning, I just realized another mark of maturity. Paul is a man who here had a depth of relationship with others. Over a hundred people that Paul writes about, and he calls them fellow workers, fellow soldiers, beloved brothers, co-workers, fellow prisoners. He writes about these people with an intimate relationship. He knows them. He's done life with them. That's a mark of maturity that there is a a depth of relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the great tragedies in the church in America is that we have a very surface relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. I mean, when we even ask the question, how are you doing, we really don't even mean it. Now, here's how you know that, because when they really start to answer, you think, I didn't really mean it, right? (laughs) I mean, you were expecting, I'm doing fine, brother. That's what we were looking for, right? When they start to open their heart up and pour it out, we have a very surface level of... Now, when you travel globally and begin to engage the church in other cultures, man, they're doing life together. That's what you see about Paul here. He was a man that did life. Why do we emphasize small groups so much here at Hope? Because maturity in Christ... One of the marks of that is a depth in relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ where you're doing life together. Paul mentions all of these friends. Listen to what William Barclay says about these friends. When we read the list of names at the end of the chapter, we are reading the names of a list of heroes of the faith. Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, John, Mark, Justice, Luke, these men and women of God that we're going to look at this week and next weekend. Let me tell you something. You're going to bump into them in heaven. And they're going to ask, did you like what they wrote about me in the Bible? (laughs) You better know who they are or that's going to be a really awkward moment in heaven. When you say, you are in the Bible, (laughs) you're going to reveal something about your depth in the Word, right? I mean, you need to know who these people are. Let's look at it. Colossians 4. Let's pick up in verse 7. Listen to what he says. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and fellow servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number. They will inform you about the whole situation here. Verse 10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings. And also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, "...about whom you received instructions, if He comes to you, you welcome Him." (laughs) Again, we don't have time to unpack that one so much. But if you know who John Mark was, John Mark was on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. And about halfway in, John Mark said, I'm out of (laughs) here. It wasn't working out too good. John Mark couldn't cut it. I don't know if it got too difficult, too tough... You can read about it in the book of Acts. But John Mark said, I'm going home. And so Paul pretty much said, I'm done with you. And apparently, Paul had even sent instructions because he says here, about whom you received instructions, if he comes, you welcome him. Here's what Paul said. Man, I was wrong. Mark's been restored. Mark's a man of grace, integrity, character. You welcome him when he comes. It's a beautiful picture there of grace. I mean, here Paul could have said, Barnabas' cousin Mark, you remember, he's the one who left us. He said, no, I, I, I gave you those instructions, but when he comes, you welcome him. He's basically saying, hey, could you just delete that email I sent? Verse 11. And also Jesus who is called Justice, (laughs) I guess so, it had been a little uncomfortable for your name to be Jesus at this point in the early church, right? So he said, why don't you guys call me Justice, not Jesus? These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision, and they prove to be an encouragement to me. I'm going to give you five marks of maturity, and I'm going to attach them to these people. And I'll explain as many of them as we have time for, all right? I may just have to list a couple at the end that we don't have time to unpack. But here's the first mark of maturity that we see here. When we're mature in Christ, there is a faithfulness that serves Christ and others. A faithfulness. I want you to understand as we're talking about these things, we're digging deeper than just, oh, I'm a person that goes to church regularly and I read my Bible daily, so therefore I'm a mature Christian. No, 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 no. Paul's digging way deeper than that now. There's a desperate pursuit of God in prayer. There's a passion for living on mission with God daily. And now we see in Tychicus, there's a faithfulness that serves Christ and others. Paul tells us three things about Tychicus in these verses. He says, first of all, he's a beloved brother. It's a phrase that means he's a man who is greatly loved by Paul and the church at Rome. They loved him. Paul tells us he was a faithful servant. It means that he was a man who was so consumed with serving Christ and others that it literally defined who he was. Paul said, Tychicus, man, we love this guy because he is a faithful servant. And then he said about him, and he's a fellow bond servant. That idea of a faithful servant really applied to his serving of others. This this particular issue of being a fellow bondservant communicates that he was viewed by Paul as a co-laborer in the mission of Christ. Wouldn't you love to have been mentioned in the Bible with those three phrases? Man, they love him because he serves other people faithfully. And he serves the mission of God like nobody you've ever seen. That'd be pretty good on your tombstone right there, right? Beloved brother, faithful servant, fellow bondservant. Enough said. You know, I think it's because he was a faithful servant and a fellow bondservant, I think that's why they loved him so much. He was beloved because this is who he was. It was his faithfulness to serve others and to serve Christ. It's interesting, Tychicus is only mentioned four other times in the Bible. You're thinking, he's mentioned five times and I've never heard his name before? No, literally, he's mentioned five times in the Bible. Right here in Colossians, he's mentioned in Acts chapter 20, Ephesians chapter 6, 2 Timothy chapter 4, and Titus chapter 3. Five times. Guess what he's doing all five times? All five times, Paul is sending him to do something. One commentator wrote and said, Tychicus was Paul's errand boy. (laughs) Every time you find Tychicus, you look it up. You do the study on your own. Every time you find him, Paul is sending him somewhere to do something on behalf of the Apostle Paul. Tychicus didn't have to have the limelight. Tychicus didn't have to have his name at the front of the letter. How many of you have been blessed by our study through the book of Colossians. Let me see your hand. Uh, Some of you have given me testimony about the life-changing truth this has been for you. How many of you are thankful that Paul wrote the book of Colossians? Did you know there'd be no book of Colossians without Tychicus? Paul wrote it in Rome. You know what he did with it? He gave it to Tychicus and said, Tychicus, it's on you. The church at Colossae needs to hear this. I want you to put this in your satchel and I know the travels gonna be hard I know there's gonna be a lot of places you want to quit I know they're gonna be after you but they need this letter Paul wrote it I'm assuming probably in a few hours ticket has traveled for weeks and weeks and weeks by foot by boat by horseback, however he could get there. And he brings the letter. How many of you have ever thanked God for Tychicus? We'd have no Colossians without Tychicus. He's a vital part of the story. It's an unknown author that made this quote, but somebody once said, the greatest ability in the world is dependability. That's Tychicus. You could depend on Tychicus. He was faithful. He was faithful to serve Paul. He was faithful to serve the church at Rome. He was faithful to serve the mission of Christ. He was faithful. Look at this quote by R. Kent Hughes on the screen. He said, Tychicus left no writings which survived. He did no feats. Which were thought worthy, worth preserving by Dr. Luke in Acts. He was a very common violin. However, God used him as a part of his divine symphony. And the music was beautiful. He was faithful. And listen, that should not surprise us. Do you remember what Jesus said about himself in Mark chapter 10? Listen to what Jesus said about himself in Mark 10, 48. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be, say it out loud, served, but to, what does it say? Serve, serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus said, I didn't come to be, what? Served. Jesus said, I came to, what? Serve. That's who Jesus is. If that's who Jesus is, and now my life is wrapped up in who he is, and as I live my life out of the overflow of intimacy with him, his life is manifest in me, guess what that means? I'm going to be a faithful servant of him and others. Why? Because it's what you have to do to be a good Christian? No, because it's who Jesus is. And as I live out of the overflow of intimacy with Jesus, a defining mark of maturity in my life, is faithful service to others. Let me show you how this is an issue of maturity. How many of you have children or grandchildren, nieces or nephews, brothers or sisters who are under the age of three? Let me see your hand. You got brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews. Let me ask you a question. How consumed are those little people with the needs of others? they're pretty much consumed with the needs of themselves, right? And if you don't believe that, just let them get left out at the dinner table or let them not get what they want and and, and pull up a chair because there's about to be a me first show right there, right? Now, when they're under three, we discipline, but we also kind of discipline kind of with our hand like this because it's kind of funny, it's kind of cute because it's immature, If your 20-year-old is sitting at the table going, that's my iPad. Hey, it's not funny anymore, right? Now, I have a 20-year-old. She doesn't do that. I wasn't meaning that about you, Hannah. I'm sorry. She doesn't do that most of the time. No, she doesn't do that at all. But as we mature... We begin to stop living for just the needs of me, and we begin to live for the needs of others. As we mature in Christ, you see, when we first get saved, we get really consumed about ourselves. When we're newborn babes in Christ, we get all consumed with what we want and what we need. But as we grow in Christ, Christ in us begins to live his life through us, and we begin to be consumed with a passion to serve him and to serve others. So with each of these, I want to give you an application question. Here's the first one. In the past seven days, how have you served Christ by serving others? I want you to just think about it. In the past seven days, how have you served Christ by serving others? And here's why I'm asking it that way. Because we can get this pseudo-spirituality that, I'm a very mature Christian because I know the Bible very well. Or I'm a very mature Christian because I've been coming to church for a very long time. Or I'm a very mature Christian because I've done this or that or I know this or that. Let me tell you what maturity looks like. A faithful servant of Christ and others. In the last week, how have you allowed Christ in you to serve others? I want you to think about that. Let me give you a second mark of maturity. You've got to listen faster, all right? Here's the second one. A humility that makes wrongs, right. Look at verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of your number. Now, now here's Paul. He wrote the letter. he given it to Tychicus. Tychicus is going to bring it to Colossae, and he's going to give him the letter, and then he's going to tell him about everything else that's been going on, which is, Awesome. I can't wait to get to heaven and hear all of that. I mean, what we have in the Bible is just a thumbnail sketch. We don't get all the stories. Paul said, I'm going to send Tychicus. Here's the letter. And oh yeah, Tychicus is going to tell you everything else too. And then it says in verse 9, And with him, Onesimus, who is one of your number. Here's what that means. He was a member at the church at Colossae. He's one of you guys. And Paul says, Now he's with me, but I'm sending him back to you. Why is he sending him back? Did you know there's a whole letter in the Bible about that? You ever read the book of Philemon? The whole book of Philemon is the story of Onesimus. You say, You're kidding me. That's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. Let me tell you who Onesimus was. He was Philemon's slave. And Onesimus ran away. He broke his contract, if you will, with Philemon. And he ran away and he left. And he'd gotten in some kind of trouble in Rome and wound up in prison. And in prison in Rome, guess who he met? Paul! Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. Onesimus was an unbeliever. That's why in Philemon, Paul writes about Onesimus and says, He's my child in the faith. In prison in Rome, Onesimus, trying to get as far away from Colossae as he can, he meets the apostle Paul. Paul leads him to faith in Christ. Paul begins to disciple him. Paul finds out his story and he says, Onesimus, if you're going to be right with God, you're going to have to go back and make this right with Philemon. So Paul wrote another letter. We call it the book of Philemon. And here's Tychicus with two books of the Bible in his satchel. Colossians, Philemon. He's going back to Colossae. Onesimus is with him. But I love it. Look, you know in Colossae everybody knew who Onesimus was. Look what Paul says about him in verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. I'm sure that raised some eyebrows in the church at Colossae. Uh, Faithful uh, Paul, uh, you do know he's a criminal. You do know that he stole and ran off. Paul says, yeah, that's who he was. But that's not who he is. And Onesimus goes back. He humbles himself before Philemon. And he makes right a wrong. Let me give you a quote that I wrote down this way. I don't have many original statements, but this, was, this is something the Lord put on my heart last week. As we grow in Christ, it's not about being right, but about making things right. You see, when you're new in this thing called Christianity, it's about being right. Oh, I want to be right. I want to show you what I know. I want to... Oh, you think that way, or let me show you my conviction. But as you grow in Christ, it's about making things right. Paul, and his discipleship of Onesimus, began to teach him that. Why is that such a big deal, Pastor Vance? Here's why it's such a big deal. The more we grow in Christ the more we understand the relationship between our fellowship with God and our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, you cannot be right with God this way and not be right with your brothers and sisters in Christ this way as far as it depends on you. You see, these relationships affect the fellowship of this relationship. Let me show it to you in a quote. Roy Hessian. Roy Hessian wrote a great book called The Calvary Road. Listen, if you've never read Roy Hessian's book, The Calvary Road, put it on your must-read list. I read it every year. It's only about that thick, all right? I know it's Father's Day. It's only that thick. Anybody can read it. All right, dads, you can do it. You can read it at halftime. You can read this little book. I mean, it's a small little book. The Calvary Road by Roy Hessian. Profound book. Listen to what he says in it. Everything that comes as a barrier between us and another, be it ever so small, comes as a barrier between us and God. Our relationship with our fellows and our relationship with God are so linked that we cannot disturb one without disturbing the other. You see, as we grow in Christ, we understand that. And we develop a humility that seeks to make things right. Again, it shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when He was describing that radical way of life, which is Christ in us. In Matthew 5, listen to what Jesus said, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Here's the question. Is there anything between you and a brother or sister in Christ that needs to be made right? You say, what they did was wrong. Yeah, that may be true. But you handling it wrong... Is just as wrong as what they did that was originally wrong. There's a humility that seeks to make things right as we grow in Christ. Let me give you a third one. Third mark of maturity. There's a devotion that sacrifices everything for the cause of Christ. Paul in verses 10 and 11, mentions three guys. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice. And we're going to lump these three guys together because the three, that, the three remaining marks of maturity that I'm going to give you are all wrapped up in these three guys together. And The first one is that devotion that sacrifices everything for the cause of Christ. Look what Paul says about them. Verse 11. He says, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. Now, you know what that meant, right? These were Jews who'd come to Christ and were now with Paul on his missionary journeys. Don't miss this part. Taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Did you hear what Paul said? These are the only three. The only three out of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem where the church was born. Paul said, these are the only three guys that are with me taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Out of our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. Let me tell you what that tells me about these three guys. They'd taken it on the chin pretty good. You see, there was still at this point in the church a division over whether or not the gospel was even for Gentiles. Some people, like Peter even, was still having to be convinced by the Holy Spirit of God that the gospel was meant for people outside of the Jewish nation. And so for these three guys, early on in their walk with Christ, to be willing to go and sacrifice everything to go with Paul, let me tell you what it means about them. They they had brought persecution into their lives. And if they were traveling with Paul, let me tell you what was going on to their family back home. Many of them were being shunned. Many of them were being neglected by neighbors and other family members. They were... Questions raised about them, there were accusations made about these three men and their families, their names in some ways had been slandered, they'd been ridiculed. Not to count the, the fact that in Jerusalem where probably they'd come from, there were many Jews that weren't believers in the gospel. And those Jews, if you remember, Paul used to be a part of them. They were literally killing Christians. They were trying to stamp out. So these men were getting persecution on both sides. The, the Christians that were Jews were, were persecuting them. The, the Jews that were not Christians were trying to end their lives. These guys made a great sacrifice. That little phrase, these were the only ones, that's a big deal. The Bible tells us about Aristarchus that he was a fellow prisoner. Scholars tell us that he was probably not arrested with Paul, but because of his devotion to Paul, he chose to be in prison with Paul. It's a choice. He was his fellow prisoner. Aristarchus is mentioned three or four times in the New Testament. Every time he's mentioned, it's a bad scene. (laughs) In Ephesus, when the riot took place and they drugged the men out of the temple there, Aristarchus was in the middle of that. When Paul was in the storm and was shipwrecked, he was in the middle of that. When Paul's in prison, he's in the middle of that. There was a devotion that sacrificed everything for the cause of Christ. Their devotion transcended their comfort. They laid down their very lives. The statement I'm about to make. I hesitate to even say it this way because in America we just don't understand what it means. There is a cost to following Jesus. We live in a culture that has so materialized the gospel in a culture that has so prostituted, the gospel, that we preach a gospel as though it exists simply to make your life better, as though it's some sort of self-help philosophy that expands your portfolio and more secures your retirement in the American dream. Let me tell you something. These three guys didn't know anything about that gospel. And that should not, even when we hear that, we have a hard time with it, but it shouldn't surprise. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus described following him in Luke 9 like this He said, If anyone, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross, which is not a a, a beautiful piece of decoration to fill our home. The cross was a brutal symbol of execution and torture. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross. And then he adds that phrase, daily, and follow me. And then look what he says. For if anyone wishes to save his life, he'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? We live in a culture that thinks there's only comfort in following Christ. And as soon as sacrifice comes along, we complain. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not up here trying to say that somehow following Christ is woe is me. No, 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 listen, listen. Let me show you the other side of this equation. Listen to what Paul said in Romans eight eighteen. Paul said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, hey, they are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Listen, here's what Paul said. It's like comparing an apple and a house. They don't even compare. It's not worthy. You can't even put it in the same sentence. The glory and the abundance of Christ far outweighs the sacrifice, but it does not diminish the reality of the sacrifice. Here's the question I want you to think about. What are some practical ways that you are making a sacrifice for your devotion to Jesus? I want you to take these questions home. I want you to think about them this way. Let me give you a fourth mark of maturity. They had an understanding that the kingdom of God is bigger than me and my church. It says about these three men, they were the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. Here's what that means. They got it. They got it. You say, what is the kingdom of God? Well, just for sake of time, let me give you a definition. Here's a definition of the kingdom of God. It's God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with Himself. That's the kingdom of God. It's God's sovereign activity in the world resulting in people being in right relationship with himself. Let me say it another way. It's the big picture of what God is doing globally. God is alive and at work in our city and all over the world and he's inviting us regardless of our walk of life to use the life that he's given us to join in the activity of expanding his kingdom. Because one day when Jesus comes again, there'll be no Hope Church or Central Church or church in South Las Vegas. When Jesus comes again again Again, there's only going to be the kingdom of God. In Revelation chapter 5, men, every tribe, tongue, people, and nation worshiping around the throne of Jesus. And these three guys, they got it! That's why they were some of the early adopters and said, you know what, it's not just about us Jews. It's bigger than us. And they lived their lives with an understanding that God was doing something. Listen, the the job that you have, and we're going to talk about this next week. As we read on in the text, there are a couple of people who were just business people that were using their platform for the expansion of God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. They understood that their life was bigger than them. It wasn't just about my job. It's not just about my retirement. There is this big umbrella of the kingdom of God where God is at work. And wherever you are, he's inviting you to get in on it. They understood it. And where there is rampant immaturity in a church, let me tell you what you begin to hear. Things like, well, our church is just getting too big. Or, all they ever talk about is people outside of our church. What about us on the inside? Let me tell you what that is. That's immaturity. Because when you begin to mature in Christ, you know what you realize? It's bigger than you and it's bigger than me and it's bigger than our church and it's bigger than our city there are lost people in our city there are lost people in the world that need the glorious gospel and unfortunately many people in the church think they think that the great commission goes something like this go make great fellowship with believers who are close to you that's not the great commission The Great Commission said, go, make disciples of all the nations. And when we begin to mature in Christ, we get that. So so here's the question. Are you joining in God's mission locally and globally to expand His kingdom? Are you joining in God's mission locally and globally to expand His kingdom? Now, if you said yes, here's what I want you to do in your personal time with the Lord. I want you to answer that question, how? 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 Here's the last one I'll give you this morning. We'll just mention it. Fifth mark of maturity. They had a spirit that encouraged others. They had a spirit that encouraged others. Look at, look at verse 11. He closes with this phrase, And they have proved to be an encouragement to me. It's interesting. That word encouragement, there's a lot of places in the New Testament where you see the word encouragement, Right? This word, encouragement, this is the only place in the entire New Testament where this Greek word is used. Only place. Every other where you read the word encouragement in the New Testament, it's a different Greek word than this one. The the normal Greek word is parakaleo. It means to call alongside of. It's to come alongside and encourage. This word is not that Greek word. It's only used right here in this verse. It's a word that we've adopted into our English language. And in the English language, we use it now as a word to describe a soothing medicine that soothes the stomach or the lungs, the breathing. It's an interesting word. It originally described a kind of speaking that would distract someone's attention from something. And as the word grew and evolved, it began to mean something soothing or comforting. And now in our culture, it's a word that, that means a, a, describes a, a soothing medicine that soothes the stomach or the lungs. <laughs> Put all that together and think about what Paul says about these guys. Man, when I'm around these guys, they just take my mind off the stuff that would stress me out and worry me and concern me so when I'm around these guys man they just soothe my soul how do people perceive you in the past week who have you encouraged and how Do I have the reputation of being an encourager? Again, these five things, let me tell you what they are Christ in me. When I'm walking in maturity with Jesus, there's a faithfulness to serve Christ and others. When I'm walking in maturity, With Jesus, there's a spirit that encourages other people. When I'm walking in maturity with Jesus, there's a devotion that sacrifices everything for the cause of Christ. When I'm walking in maturity with Jesus, there's an understanding that the kingdom of God is bigger than me and my church. And when I'm walking in maturity with Jesus, there's a humility that makes wrongs right. So here's what I want you to do this week. Please. Don't just hear a sermon and go home. I want you to take these things and I want you to lay them down on your life and ask some really hard questions about your maturity in Christ. If Paul wrote your name, what would he say? If you were one of those names, what would he say? Let's pray.